Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. This is show number 300. Yes, it's been six years since we've been doing this. And my guest this week is Dennis Moody, who happens to have been the very first guest on this podcast, as well as I think on just about every year since then. And we'll talk more about that more. But first of all, streaming growth has been slowing. Yeah, it was a gangbuster year last year for streaming in the United States. The year-end report from Alpha Data, which is what Rolling Stone uses to power their charts, says that there is just a tad over 1 trillion streams in the U.S. That's 1 trillion music streams. That was up 25% from the year before, which sounds really great. The only thing is, the previous four or five years, the growth was about 40% or greater. So what we're finding here is that the growth is slowing. And that could be a little disconcerting, especially for some of the major record labels. Universal Music indicated that their revenue growth had decelerated a lot last year. And that's kind of scary. Even video streams. Yes, they were up 10.6% last year. But in other years, the growth was much, much greater. For video, there were about 304 billion streams. So compare that to music, and you see that music is really going gangbusters these days. There are certain things that are not gangbusters. Album sales dropped below 100 million to about 93 million. That's a 23% decrease. Boy, it used to be that we'd blow past 100 million in no time during the year. And now it takes us a whole year and we don't even get there. Download sales also. There were 295 million, which is a lot more than I would have expected. That being said, it's down by 26% and that looks like it's falling off a cliff. Vinyl was up 10% to about 10.7 million, but that's also decelerating. Other years have found the growth much, much higher than this. And if you look at vinyl, really... It's about 5 or 6% of the entire music business. It's not that great, regardless what those numbers are, and it looks kind of impressive, but it's not as good as you might think. So when it comes down to it, we're finding that everybody's happy in the music business. It's prospering. There is money. The budgets are higher. The executives have big smiles in their faces, but that may not last that much longer. I think we're still going to have growth here for a while, but it's not going to be the wild growth that we're seeing for these last four or five years after streaming sort of hit the mainstream. So it will be interesting to see exactly what happens this coming year. In 2020, I'm going to be watching the reports very closely just to see how this plays out. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosenskycourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, here's something that's really interesting. UC Berkeley did a study of 2,500 random people in the United States and China. And what they wanted to find out is what kind of music triggers what kind of emotions. 
what they discovered was there were 13 emotions that music triggers. So how do they figure that out? If you take notice that China is a big part of this, and the reason why is they wanted to compare cultures and how music affects different cultures, and it turns out that it's very similar between them. So they played 40 different samples, and that includes everything from Ed Sheeran's Shape of You to George Michael's Careless Whispers, Vivaldi's Four Seasons, The Clash, Rock the Casbah, Al Green's Let's Stay Together, the shower scene from Psycho, and the movie score from Jaws. It was really varied. And they found that these 13 emotions were a result of listening to these examples. Here they are. Amusement, joy, eroticism, beauty, relaxation, sadness, dreaminess, triumph, anxiety, scariness, annoyance, defiance, and feeling pumped up. I'd say that just about covers it. So then the researchers weren't satisfied. They went back and they did a second study just to verify everything. And this time they used 1,000 participants, but 300 different pieces of traditional music. So now they were comparing against the music of the particular culture. And you know what? They found out exactly the same thing. 13 musical emotions. So you might think about that because it might be an interesting way to write, writing around an emotion. Now, certainly that's sometimes the case when you're doing a movie score, television score, you're writing production music, you're writing for an emotion. But it might be interesting to write a pop song like that as well. My guest today in episode number 300 is Dennis Moody, who's the engineer of choice for some of the world's top drummers, including Dave Weckl, Steve Gadd, Vinnie Caliuta, James Gadson, Dennis Chambers, Greg Bissonette, and many more. He's also one of the few studio engineers that also tours the world as a front-of-house engineer as well. Dennis was my first guest on my very first podcast back almost six years ago now. Since then, he's been the only guest to return more than twice, appearing on podcasts number 50, 100, 150, and 200. I like to check back every year with Dennis to get some updates in the world of audio since he travels the world so much. That said, I haven't had him on for a couple of years, so it was really good to catch up. During the interview, we spoke about the trends in audio, especially live sound, the economics of the touring business, using subwoofers, the search for the mic that works better than an SM58, and much more. I spoke with Dennis via Skype from his home in the high California desert. Tell me about the last two years in terms of the trends that you've been seeing. Trends in gear, trends in music. Gear, it's getting more... uh... I'm saying like live consoles are getting smaller, which I don't really like. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of that. Um, they're getting cheaper and they're getting better. And, you know, I, it's hard for me because every time you go to a different club or a different venue, you got a different console. You have to learn all that stuff over and over. And then once you learn it, it's obsolete. So that's an issue that I don't really like about about it but they're throwing stuff out so fast uh, music i'm kind of um with my circle of clients and stuff i'm still working with the same kind of people the, the jazz fusions uh did a big show with dave weckel in st louis with his 
uh, his original band, <clears throat> which was quite a success, went to Cuba with Dave Weckl's band. That was really nice. Uh, I'm not working with my Persian artists anymore, Gugush. They have new managers that wanted to try things differently. Um, it wasn't the problem. They actually called me back, but I wasn't available. So um, they that that gig's over. But it was quite a Nine years, and I, I feel for them. They're having a lot of technical issues going on with their shows right now, but you know they're they're trying uh, trying to get it together. And uh, I have plenty of other things to do. My clients, I've still did a lot of my in my studio the last couple months, but before that, I was on the road so much, which is good and bad. <laughs> it's nice to be busy, but when you're away. I mean, you know, you get just disconnected really quickly from your circle of clients and colleagues, you know? Yeah. When you've been away, has it been for long periods of time? Well, not really. The longest I was probably was three weeks out of this. But what happens is we'll leave Thursday, fly somewhere to the East Coast, do a show, fly somewhere the next day, do a show, fly somewhere the next day, do a show, fly back to L.A., Next day, I'll Tuesday. I will fly back to LA. Tuesday, I will um, spend prepping the next, uh, just finalizing the preparation on the next week's gigs. I'll have Wednesday for myself, and then Thursday we do it again. So you know, I came back and, and the last gig with uh, Keiko Matsui, who I've been working with a, a lot last year. I came back about a three foot pile of paperwork on my desk that needed to be sorted out. And I was going, Oh, this is too much. So I'm catching up now, but, um, the longest I was gone for maybe three weeks, three weeks. And uh, that's about enough now, but I mean, I'll take more if it, I prefer the short ones, you know, a couple weekends a month is fine. Last time I talked to you, you mentioned the fact that you were required to do dual jobs not only mix, but also be the tour manager as well. Yeah, we call it the professional babysitter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, you know, I understand that's the way it is now, so I try and deal with it, but it's not what I do. I'm not a a tour manager. I'm not a a travel agent. I'm not a, uh, you know, menu coordinator. And those are all jobs manager and um, i found that if if i want to you know make it my way okay here's where we're eating tonight and they go why we don't want to eat there uh, you know we want to we want to try some and then I, if I or on the opposite side if i say hey where do you guys want to eat i get you're the road manager so it's never you can't make anybody happy you know it's really hard um that's a special talent and that's not my thing you know i mix and I can set up the stage and I can uh, prep uh, the advance for the sound gear and, and even send out an equipment rider if I need to. But, uh, you know, it's not what I do. So, uh, but uh, unfortunately, we have to do a lot of it now. And um, it's, it's, it's a kind of an issue for me, but, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get, get through it. You mentioned before that consoles were getting smaller is that because they're of the layers there's fewer faders and more layers yeah yeah so now most of the smaller clubs will have an m32 which is 16 faders per layer and um they they go up to 32 channel yeah they're getting smaller because they want to be portable if people can bring them they'll they'll start to 
mean, they are bringing their own consoles now, which I don't, I don't get because you can get that console. You can run down to guitar center or, or somewhere and then pick up one of those consoles, use it for your show and return it the next day. If you do, <laughs> or you can rent one for very uh, affordably. There's no need to, you put on a USB stick and that's your whole mix. So I don't understand the logic of that, but that's what they're doing. Now everybody's getting these consoles and, uh, you can pretty much find an M32 or an X32 Behringer about anywhere these days. And now the Yamaha CL5, which is my console of choice, is is uh, pretty much I can find it anywhere, which is really nice. I really like that console. It gives 72 inputs, so when I'm doing these orchestra dates, it covers about half of the inputs I need. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that they're getting better. Is that because of the processing or just the sound? I think it's the the design, the layout. You know, sonically, uh, I was okay with the M seven CL, which a lot of people think is is uh, not a great console. It's practical, easy to use. You can see all your faders on one page, um, and to me, it's it's not the gear; it's the ear. So um, sonically, the only consoles I don't. Well, I won't name them here, but there's some consoles that are extremely popular that I go, how can they be? They don't sound that good, and they're extremely difficult. Um, what they're doing is they're making the features. The features are much more uh, practical for what you would need. You have your access to your auxes, and you can do much more with grouping and um, and and such you have more parameters much more there uh, reverbs all kinds of stuff they're giving you these days which are uh, making things much much easier mix i mean i could run eight reverbs on the cl5 where i could only do four on the m7 cl let's talk about the demands for musicians has that changed at all um Here's what I'm saying when I advance a show. You know, I, the management will send out a writer um, with the back line on it, and I will call just to make sure they have it. And if they don't, what options they have. Um, this is what I'm saying now with the touring uh, club bands, let's say the smooth jazz bands and such. You get all your back line is given to you, and then in really small letters at the print at the bottom it says from house backline supply okay so these clubs now are going out instead of renting a, a drum set for 400 bucks a night they're spending two grand and buying a drum set okay so after five nights it's paid for and then they own it and then they're buying two or three they'll buy a dw they'll buy a yamaha and they'll buy whatever the next uh, most popular one is they're doing it with uh, bass rigs. You'll get two or three options. Guitar amps, you'll get two or three, a Marshall or a Fender. So um, musicians getting more demanding, they can get more demanding, but the, it's not possible. You know, I have to look at a contract when I'm talking to these um, the production managers at the venue, and and I see what's what's permitted and what's going to be done. And then when the band comes and they go, Hey, I don't like these symbols. I go, well, we can get them. They're $200 uh, for each night. And we're there three nights and the artist isn't going to pay $600 for symbols when they have uh, an optional symbol there that works. So they have to get more. Um, they're getting more used to this fact 
you know, um, that their options are going to be more limited now, unless you want to carry your stuff. You know, you can't fly an amp, uh, an amplifier somewhere. It's 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 too expensive these days. You know, so. Yeah. Are you seeing any modeling amplifiers? Yes, I saw the uh, with Edgar Winter. Um, Doug, the guitarist, used Camper. It's phenomenal. Uh, the first show we used it on was in Amsterdam, actually, and I just couldn't believe how great it sounded. Um, but he was missing it. He couldn't get that back from the monitors. So what he did, I got the Camper out front, and then he took an output, a Y output of it, and put a Marshall on stage, and uh, it worked very well. They're really sounding great. They're really coming up with some really good stuff these days. Kind of curious about... If the acts that you're doing are still on floor monitors or in-ears? It depends. Uh, uh, Keiko Matsui, who was my main biggest client all year for touring, uh, they're all on floor wedges. But then she has one wedge for her piano, and that's it. Goes on her left side. The drummer, Jimmy Branley, has one monitor. And then the bass player and guitar player are so close to each other on the stage Um they split one monitor. There's no need to have two monitors. So they're all on floor wedges. Some of the bigger ones, uh, Oingo Boingo, former members of Oingo Boingo that are still together and doing some great shows. We did quite a, a lot of shows last year. They're, uh, the lead singer's on ears. Uh, one of the guitarists is on ears. The drummer is on ears um, for some of it. So it's it's it's... I think it's personal preference. I, I would love it if I could get everybody on ears. Uh, when I was working for the Persian singer, Gugush, I really pushed to get uh, any any new member. I've said, you're on ears. You don't have a choice. <laughs> you're uh-huh. on ears. Because the stage level just gets so loud. You know, the drummer is very loud. Great drummer, but very loud. And then the bass player would turn up to be louder enough. And then everybody would just be fighting each other. So... Uh, I really enjoy it when they're all in ears, you know, but um, some of them just won't do it. So you have to put a wedge up for them, old school. Okay, but that being said, when you're in small clubs, is there a monitor engineer or are you doing both, both front house and monitor? Front house and monitor, yep. Yeah, front house and monitor. Even some of the bigger places now are having that. I I see guys doing big thousand-seaters, doing monitors – they set up the monitors from front of house and then they work off of the iPads on stage. So even uh, to me, I would, I can't imagine that, Uh, but I've seen it. I see people doing it and I just hope it's not the wave of the future. They just keep cutting people out, you know, and it's uh, due to economics. Um, But, but uh, now with the, the iPad mixing capabilities and the iPhone, mixing capabilities with the like the yamaha monitor mix and then uh, behringer and midas have a really good one with their system but again they're they're limited to 32 channels so that's hard to um, get get everybody you know with all the bands a lot of the bands i do have much more channel more channel count than that so yeah what what are you seeing for line arrays well you have the um l acoustic which are very popular and sound phenomenal. And then you have the um, D&B, um, which are the top two. Uh, JBL, Vertec uh, is a really good one I see around, but mostly L-Acoustic and D&B. To me, 
I first was introduced to D&B when I was living in Europe um, after I met you originally back in 1990, was it 90 or 91 when we met? And then I went to Europe in 93, I was introduced to D&B and they were a local, it's a German company. And I used those and it was phenomenal. I noticed them immediately, could tell the difference in the quality. So I'm a big fan of D&B. Um, uh, sometimes you get an off-brand, I, I won't name them, but you know you have to make it work. You know, but I get in when I'm doing a show. I'll just play a few pieces of music and listen on my iPod. I have a four or five tunes: one to hear where the bass low frequency and the subs are, one for the high frequency, and then one just for general music. So I can EQ it. Sometimes the EQ is pretty drastic, but that's to compensate for a different kind of loudspeaker. Each venue is is a uh, is is uh, you know of course different, but uh, here's another thing: you could put a D and B rig in one venue and then put the same one in another, and they're going to sound completely different, you mm. know. So you have to just kind of use your ear. Does that have to do with the way the subwoofers are configured? I'm not sure, and and when I mix, I'm very light on the subs, and I ask them to please adjust the processor on the the main boxes as low as they can go, and I don't push. You know, I'm not uh, mixing techno and stuff like that. So when I'm doing jazz fusion or smooth jazz, even, I don't really, you know, I like them to get the mains down to about 60 if they can. And then I can get what I need out of that. Uh, I'm very light on the subs. I put a little bit of kick in there, a little bass. If there's some loops, uh, I'll, you know, that need low stuff, I'll put that in. But I don't know if um, it's just the acoustics of each room, you know the very so it's it's hard to say i go into every room with an open mind and hopefully it's good some of them are really bad uh some of them are most of them are decent and a lot are really great so depends where you are have you heard the l acoustics elisa system by any chance the immersive system i think i have um but i can't really i mean going to three or four venues every weekend it's it's hard to keep track <laughs> you know i just okay there's speakers here's my console let's let's do this you would know with this because there's no less than five arrays across the front oh, okay usually more it's a system very much like dolby atmos matter of fact it is it's the same thing it's basically atmos for live huh. the the whole idea is if you run a stereo sound system then you only have a small sweet spot in the audience but with this up to 95 percent of the audience can hear what you're doing as far as panning is concerned and then you can also add up to 128 channels so if you're in a, a, a venue you know you can do overheads and on the side and the rear and everything it's what aerosmith is using in las vegas during their residency that's interesting because the Sony Musical in New York City has that, and I did a few shows there last uh, few months ago uh, with Keiko Matsui and Randy Brecker, and then I what's the other? One? I can't remember the other one, but they offered it to me. They said you want to use the Atmos, and I said I don't want to experiment on her. They said once I commit to it, I can't change it by pushing a button and go back to stereo fold down. So I, I didn't opt to use it. 
I think that needs a little more planning. Uh, but he said what they do is they take the stage plot and they configure the outputs according to the stage plot. So it gives you the feeling that you're sitting in the, in the stage with the band. And it, it sounded interesting, but, you know, when you have a band coming in town in the morning and people are expecting a certain quality of a show and if it doesn't work or I'm not used to it or, you know, not setting it up, properly for some reason it could be a disaster so i haven't opted to use it yet i went out to l acoustics in westlake i didn't realize they have a very big facility out there and they have one room where they have a 22 channel system set up and it was made specifically to do your pre-production before you actually went out and, and ran into that situation so basically you can program everything up, put it on your stick, and then take it out, and then. Go. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. What console? I mean, do they have variable consoles, or is it? Oh, uh, there's only one. I don't recall what it was, to be honest with you. But pretty interesting, I have to say. I I was really struck by how cool it was. I thought about that back in the '90s when I was doing musicals, how to how that system like that could work, you know. But it hadn't been invented yet. So see, I snoozed, I lost. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think the processing was there yet because it's all object-based when you're moving things around and, you know, it does require, well, for today, it's not that big a deal with the computers that we have. <laughs> but back then, it, it would have been a chore, I think. That's true. Al Gore hadn't invented the internet yet. Yeah, there you go. Right, right. Yeah. That's pretty neat, though. I bet it would work great in musicals and shows, especially if you're in a fixed place for like... Uh, a month when I did Porgy and Bass, Gershwin's Porgy and Bass, you know, we had this big orchestra, 94 piece orchestra, 60 piece choir, and then we had 16 leads on, uh, you know, uh, wireless theater mics. And I think they're Sennheisers. I can't remember what we use Sennheisers and DPAs. And uh, I just thought how cool it would be if we could get some motion happening, you know, as the guy's walking across the stage. It would really add to it. But I think they're all doing that now. I went down to downtown LA where there was a show using the Aliza system and it was like a uh, off-Broadway show, about uh, 200 seat theater or so and it was a combination stage, show, video, holograms, all that stuff all built into one and so it was perfect for the type of immersive sound system that they had as well. It, the whole thing was very impressive, I have to say. It's one of those things where you, you didn't think about the audio because it was just so tied in really well with the other media. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's great when that happens. And it does it does happen a lot, you know. Yeah. But in the, a, a theatrical piece or a you know, multimedia piece, I think, it'd be much more efficient, you know. Yeah. Uh, very cool. Although I hear, you know, that there are a number of artists that are going out on tour with it. Geez, I think they said Ed Sheeran was one of them, although it doesn't seem like he has a big band, so it doesn't matter, but uh, th there were a few. Anyway, let's talk about the studio for a little bit. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, that's funny because I just i've been gone so much coming in and out you know things a little few maintenance issues like a switch will break okay so i'll do a quick work around so i can continue working and then another switch will break or the air conditioner will go out and no problem it's it's winter now so we don't need it and i just finally in november 
I, I started with new air conditioners, you know, very quiet, uh, very efficient, much more efficient than I had. Uh, I got started getting little things fixed. I had a, I have a C3 Hammond in there. Someone, um, gifted me and uh, the power switch was broken for three years. You know, I can't use this, <laughs> all these little things. I made a list and I just started working down on it. Like a handles on the sliding door, you know, were taped with gaffer tape. I fixed all that stuff. I had a M5 Avalon mic pre that was out for years, but I had other options. So I didn't bother with it. I got all that stuff fixed. Uh, all that stuff fixed. I picked up some mics from an estate sale. I got some great mics, uh, things that, uh, let's see, I got a 441, a couple 421s, came 84, 2460s, a 451, a D112, a great deal, a really great deal, probably a third of what they're worth i think maybe but um just adding to the mic collection you know i got a, a couple uh, wa87s that i'm enjoying um it, so i have a nice mic collection going now uh to enhance what i already had so more options that way you know if, oh i got a 441 too which i love on acoustic basses and being that i do a lot of jazz dates it's, it's a really great mic for that so, so it's coming together. It's really uh, coming together. I just hope I'm here a lot more in 2020 so I can actually enjoy it. It's a nice little studio. So, Tell me about the WA-87s, the Worm Audio. The reason why is, you know, I hear a lot about them. I haven't tried them myself, or at least not in a real environment. And the people I talk to about them, I'm not so sure how much I trust their judgment. You've been around enough and you know what the real thing sounds like and you know all the alternatives so what's your opinion well um in all fairness to them you know the mic is a, a, a fourth of the price of a real 87 if not less so you're going to have uh, different parts in it you know so i it doesn't sound like a real 87 to me it has a it's a little harsher in the mid-range uh than a real 87 is and i'm using a gml mic pre uh, so that's not affecting that at all. Um, it's just a little harsher in the mids. And if you get a soft singer, okay, for example, if I put them on my acoustic piano, they sound awesome. They have just the right curve uh, to make my piano just really sound great, uh, phenomenal. Um, but if I use them on a loud singer, I mean a really loud like R&B singer, um, they can they can peak out. I've had it happen a couple times, and you know when you have a singer in there, uh, you can't have that. So that's it's a little bit concerning to me. But I do love them. I use them for uh, softer singers. They have just that punch, just the perfect tone for them. And I've tried both of them to make sure it wasn't just one of them that was sounding like that. You know, I mean Bryce over at uh, Warm Audio is a great guy, and I've been friends with him since they first came out. And I'm, I, I'm really supportive of what they're doing, you know. Um, but I have to know, in my opinion, you know, this is not a Neumann U87. This is a Warm Audio 87, and it's going to have a different characteristics. But uh, I love it. I really, really like the way it's working for me. You know, I found that, too, where the less expensive alternatives, that tends to be a characteristic where they just cannot take the level. No. 
no, they can't. And and it was the first time I found that out was uh, it was not a good situation for it. I had a pretty well known uh, R and B disco singer from the eighties, late seventies, eighties, and uh, she hit a note and it just went poof. Mm. I said, "No, we we I can't have that. I, I I know how to fix it though. You know, I'm pretty good at getting rid of that stuff. I just went in and cut that poof that." poof noise i just cut it 500 and below and it kind of went away as uh i was able to mask it so it worked fine but you know you can't have that and with a real neumann which would cost me 2500 or more i i don't think i would have that issue i think it would hold up a little more and i'm not sure what the mid-range uh, is i can't remember when doing horn dates in other studios like a Sunset Sound or Paramount or something, I, I know that 87 is going to, I know how it's going to sound. It's not going to have that bump at 3, 3K that this one has. Is there something that you're looking to buy? Yes. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> yes. I want to get the Neumann U67 reissue. And I hear from everybody. I mean, I, when we go to our audio lunches with Peter Doyle over there on Wednesday afternoons, I was talking to Al Schmidt about it, and he said, oh, my, and I said, hey, what do you think of this? He goes, it sounds just like the old days. You know, they did a great job on it. Uh, of course, even there, I think there probably there's going to be some differences, but to buy a new one, you know it's going to be all original. It's going to be intact. You know, you have no idea. Someone offered me a, um, a Telefunk in 67 recently for less money than a new and I go, that's impossible but turned out that the diaphragm had been replaced not original one of the tubes had been replaced uh, you know you pay that kind of money uh, it, it sounds great but it's not annoying you know once you change the diaphragm in the tube you, you've kind of lost it it's something else you know speaking of telefunking i was at the factory in connecticut I was basically at a conference in, in Connecticut and they had a barbecue at the Telefunken factory afterwards. I was amazed at how big an operation it is. I mean, really big. I just had no idea they were shipping that number of microphones. And really, they were across the board, you know, their most expensive ones down to the least expensive ones. But they were going out the door at a rate like you wouldn't believe. You know, they all kind of came out at the same time trying to compete with each other, and they're both great. They're all, all great mics. Sure love having a C12 now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you run into any of their live microphones at all? Telefunken? No, I haven't. What is that, the M88? I think it is. Do you see the, the uh, Neumann one? Uh, well, here's the th Yes, I have one client who's... Uh, Great jazz singer, and she has a, a Neumann, was the 105, and it picks up everything. I had to put a 58 on her after, <laughs> as we were picking up, feed, we were just feeding back, you know, and when you're in a club, it was a Blue Note Hawaii, Honolulu, and it was just feeding back, you know, the way the speakers are configured, you, you, you know, you, I, I can't use one. And when I was with Babyface, we tried one and the whole you know you could turn off the band the whole thing's coming through the vocal mic they sound great but you better have a singer that just really consistently belts you know otherwise you get so your signal to noise is rejected you know you you can get the whole band comes through it so um i do love the way they sound um but i 
would probably opt for a 58 because I know how they sound after doing this for decades and I know what to expect, you know, out of it uh, with all those issues, feedback and proximity and all that. I know exactly what to do with that. Have you found a microphone better than a 58? That's funny. Uh, I heard one, but I don't remember what it was. It was some kind of Sennheiser. And remember the music machine over in West L.A.? Sure. Back in the 80s and 90s? They had a mic there, and I had one singer who was extremely dynamic, and when he'd go low notes, it got really muddy, and when he'd go high, it would be shrieking. And this mic had no reaction to that. It just sounded great at all levels. And I go, what mic is that? And I've tried to find out, and I've actually tried some Sennheisers that I thought might be it, and uh, it wasn't. You know, the, it wasn't the one, but I can't remember what it was. But no, 58 to me always works. And if you get a Beta 58 or 58A, they're too bright for me. They're too sibilant. Um, just saw a show downtown at the, uh, one. I don't know if it was Orpheum or somewhere, as a band, an uh, Irish folk band called the Water Boys. And I know their drummer well, so I went down there and I couldn't believe the sibilance that was coming off the guy's mic, you know. And I asked my friend Ralph after the show what kind of vocal mic was he using. Oh, he's using a 50, 50, Beta 58A, I think, or Beta 87A, and that's the wrong mic for him. It's just too bright. It's just cutting your ears off, you know. And then you have to DS it, so just get the right mic. Um, originally, yes, I think there might be some out there, but I don't know what they are. Mm, okay. One of these days, I'll find it, though. Everybody's trying to replace the 58, but so far, no one's really come out with the killer. No, no, and it's going to be hard for them to do that because everybody's ear is used to it. You know, the people who go to shows, they're used to it. You know, they, they know that sound. Even if they don't, they know that's what it sounds like. So, so uh, I'm, I'd be curious to see. You know, every everybody has a new idea. You know, what do they say? Uh, anyway, yeah, it's it's interesting to see what's going to happen. Besides what we talked about before, what do you see that's changing in the business? What do I see in this whole business? Yeah. Uh, economy, e- economics. They're finding that they can get away with doing less, and they're doing less, even if they don't need to do less. And to me, it makes the people working the show, the production crews, have to work much harder and take on much more responsibility, but they aren't being compensated for that. You know, I don't see people, you know, like the road manager, sound guy thing, you know, they don't pay us extra for that. It's just part of the pay. And uh, so I think in the entire business, economics, and now everybody has a studio at home, Uh, everybody has... uh, you know, or they have access to Frandu does that they just aren't spending the money they used to. They just aren't spending the money. And I, I and it's kind of sad because uh, I don't want to get into specifics because I don't want to look like I'm talking bad about people, but there's some shows I've done where they they've actually cut the money so bad that it's it's, it's the shows have crashed out. Mm. You know, more than once, you know, they're consistently crashing out, but yet they aren't doing anything because the managers won't spend the money. You know, the funny part about that is 
I think the music business has come late to that, or at least the, the touring side of the business has come late, where we've seen this happen in other businesses where half of the employees would be let go and everybody that was left would have two or three jobs to do for the same amount of money, which has been kind of the norm for a while, and now we're seeing it in your end as well. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. And uh, like flying, you know, I say I'm a United one was one K with United for years and years in a row, which means you are their top clients. Now I'm six and a half feet tall. So people go, well, what's the big deal? Just go on the plane and fly there. They don't understand the the planes are getting smaller and the seats are getting smaller and smaller. So it's a really important for me to maintain my status on there so I can at least get economy plus, you know, given to me gratis when I book a flight, you know, uh, they, some of them are refusing to book me on this and no, you have to go with everybody else and you have to fly in Delta or American and it's just too much expense or, and it's really a problem this year. I, I, I didn't make, make it even to the lowest level. Uh, I had to do some creative financing stuff a couple of weeks ago to be able to make sure that I maintain my, my, at least my lowest status is going to allow me to have those things like star Alliance gold. And, and again, people don't think that's important, but if you're going to LAX every weekend and flying somewhere and you're doing, you know, hundred flights every year or more, it's very important to have those kind of things, you know, but when it comes to money, they just won't pay it. You know, I don't do nearly as much flying as you do, but I do a lot and it's really important to me and I go out of my way to maintain that status mm-hmm. uh, even if it costs me more money because in the long run I know I'm going to be ha- happier sure flying is not fun I don't know that it ever was but it's worse than it, it's ever been so you might as well be comfortable or as comfortable sure. as it can be yeah not and they keep changing the 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 requirements to qualify for any of that like I said I didn't make it this year so I had to go spend a bunch of money on my credit card uh, to to you know hit a waiver level where I could do it, and I just did it barely. But you know, yeah, it's it's difficult. It is difficult, but um, it's not fun. Yeah. Okay. The economics. You know, the funny thing is, the big studios are still busy, and yep. in many cases, they actually have multi-month bookings, which didn't happen for the longest time. And of course, we're talking bigger acts that have the budget that they can do it. I, I guess we're talking about the 1% really, but the studios are the 1% anyway the, that I'm talking about. We thought for a while that they weren't going to last, but apparently there's uh, a, a demand for it. But, you know, every everybody in the middle, that's a tough business to be in. I'm I'm in the middle. I might even be on the lower end of it because I don't have outside engineers coming into my place. I mean, they're welcome, but... I've only had a couple, you know, but it, you know, I'm, I mean, here's my, in my studio, if, if you, a band wants to come in for a couple of days, you know, they can come in for three days and record eight hours a day and it's going to be under two grand, you know, I mean, it's a very reasonable rate and that's why I'm managing to keep busy because I didn't price myself out of the lower range people. I mean, they want to come in and cut a track in four hours of studio to cost some 300 bucks, you know, and they could come in and, and that's not outrageous at all. You know, then they come in and I have all the headphones, I have all the mics, I have the space. So I'm lucky that I'm able to compete 
and stay busy, even though I'm mostly pre- uh, cutting tracks for people who will take it home and do their post-production and then bring it back to me to mix usually, or they'll mix it themselves. Oh, they're asking you to mix as well. That's great. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm doing a lot of mixing and a lot of, I'm doing a lot of editing, a lot of mixing, a lot of mixing and a lot of mastering lately too. You know, I, I, I was using Eddie and now that he's not doing, doing it, you know, I, anymore, I, uh, with Oasis, I, I said, wait a minute, let me, well, I can do this. I sat next to the the kings of the business, you know, Fred John Golden, Ken Perry, you know, Bernie Grundman. I sat next to those guys, you know, for, for years and watched what they were doing. I go, wait, I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. So I started doing it and I just, if some, one of my clients wants to, I just charge them the rate, you know, that I'm doing for recording the record and mixing it and, and making sure that the product at the end comes out how I'm hearing it. You know, it's been working for me. You can find out more about Dennis at DennisMoody.com. Dennis Moody, M-O-O-D-Y, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOInnerCircle.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to BobbyOsinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to BobbyOInnerCircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Yeah.